0: We come again to one of those delightful incidents that our Lord had. Well, we've seen several. One when he went out to dinner, well, in fact, several occasions. And then some of the parables he told, actually, they're horrific and they're thrillers. And here's an incident that has a great deal of humor in it, and yet it's a glorious incident, by the way. And you must remember it this time, Our Lord's on the way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And on the way up, he goes through Jericho. And I'm going to read now verse 1. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, he's on the way to Jerusalem, and it says he straightway set his face to go to Jerusalem. We know he was over in the Samaritan country because Luke tells us that he was there, and fact of the matter is, a Samaritan came to him, and he passed through the midst of Samarian Galilee, we're told. Well, he's off the beaten track now, that is, the road that he came down from the north to go to Jerusalem. Now he's gone down to Jericho. Why? He entered and passed through Jericho. Well, there's a sinner there. In fact, there were two or three of them there, and he's gone after them. And that's the reason he went through Jericho. And if you miss the movement here, you miss, I think, the entire message. You can widen this out and say that he entered and passed through this world. You see, Jericho was the cursed city. Joshua had pronounced the curse upon it. The city was cursed, and the man who rebuilt it was cursed. It was a city, it was a sort of resort area, I suppose like the Las Vegas of today. And it also had a great many that came down for vacation. And it was a place where the publicans lived. And the publicans were sort of like the modern mafia. They were tax gatherers, only a little worse than the ones we have today. And we are told Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And he also entered and passed through this world. He didn't come down into this world to stay And he came down to die. I entered this world to live. I'd like to live a long time. But he came into this world for one purpose, to die. And he said, I've come forth from the Father. I've come into the world again. I leave the world and I go to the Father. Tremendous movement, you see. And here it's mirrored in the fact that he entered and passed through Jericho. Don't miss that. And then we have, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Three things that are said about this man. And that's about all you need to know. The Spirit of God has a way of just taking one flourish of the pen and telling us all we need to know about a person. The first thing is, his name was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, actually, when I found out what the word meant, I began to laugh, and my wife came into the study and wanted to know why I would be laughing at something while I was studying. I shouldn't be reading jokes. Well, I wasn't reading jokes. I was reading the 19th of Luke, and I looked up the meaning of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus means pure. Can you imagine a publican that was pure? But you can see what's back of this. He was given that name when he was a baby. You see, his father and mother looked down at him, and they thought he was the most precious little fellow in the world, and he was so sweet and innocent. They called him Pure. And I think there was a lot of fun down in Jericho when they called him by name. They said, Hello there, Pure. And the fellow's a publican, he's a tax gatherer. What a name. But we do the same thing today. I think I've told you this, and if I haven't, I should have done it a long time ago. I have a grandson, and that's the biggest thrill I had. I'd be very frank with you if I'd just only known how much fun grandchildren are I had mine before I had my own children, because the grandchildren are lots more pleasure. Of course, when they get crying and dirty, you can send them home. But this man, Zacchaeus, I can well understand, his parents look down at him, and it doesn't make any difference whose son that he might have been if he'd been mine been the same reaction. Why, a child may have a head like a 10-cent watermelon, and we think it's the most beautiful child in the world. I had a professor at seminary that said, you're going to meet many parents that want you to praise their babies, their new babies. And you can't be honest and say the baby is beautiful. Well, you can't say anything good about all of them. And he says, I've just learned in my ministry that when I walk in and I see one like that, I say, my, that's a baby. Well, now, you're telling the truth when you say that, but you know that's taken as a compliment. My, that's a baby. And that's what Zacchaeus says. And friends, my, what a baby he was, because he was the chief among the publicans. They never dreamed he'd turn out as he did, but he did turn out he was chief among the publicans. One dark night... He had to weigh whether he would sell out to Rome or not. And that's what a publican was. A publican paid Rome so much for a certain territory to gather taxes. And then, of course, he went in and gathered lots more than he paid Rome for the privilege. And that means Zacchaeus had done pretty well. He was the chief among the publicans. He was the leader among them. And that night he weighed it. He said, if I become a publican why, I'll give up my not only his wonderful position in the nation, but he'd give up his religion. He'd have no more access to the temple. I think he's that publican who stood afar off and smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or God, make a mercy seat for me, a poor sinner, to come to. Because this Zacchaeus wanted to get back to God. And that night, he it and he said, Well, if I become a publican, I lose all those privileges, but I'm going to become rich and buy anything I want, or I can go on as I am now. Well, it was a dark night, I say, because he made the wrong decision, and he became a publican. He became the chief among the publicans. And the third thing, he was rich. Now, friends, he made it pay. He didn't go in this thing half-hearted. When he went in to collect taxes... If the widow couldn't pay her taxes, he put her out. If the man didn't have enough, well, he took a mortgage on the place. And I tell you, he had robbed many a person. This was this man, Zacchaeus. But when he had made that decision and became a publican, he found out that if you have all the wealth in the world, it doesn't satisfy your heart at all. And he wished he could go back. But he had gone down a one-way street, and there wasn't any way to get back to that mercy seat And he wanted mercy, and our Lord knew that. In fact, our Lord told about him. And now he comes down through this place of Jericho in order that he might get him, in order that he might take him with him, not to Jerusalem, but to take him to the cross, if you please, and show him that there's salvation for him. Well, he was interested. We read next, "...he sought to see Jesus, who he was and could not for the press." because he was little of stature. A friend of mine, a seminary professor who just about lost his faith, he's puzzled, he says, about whether there was one blind man or two blind men. I kiddingly told him there are two blind men and you can prove it. The blind man, when Jesus entered Jericho and Zacchaeus, he looked at me puzzled. Why do you mean Zacchaeus is blind? Well, it says that he could not see for the press. And the reason he was... He was a little stature. He had eyes, but they weren't up high enough for him to look over the crowd. But he did what I generally do every New Year's Day at the Rose Parade. I've learned a long time ago there's no use going down there and sit on the line of march all night long. Somebody says, well, why don't you invest a few dollars and buy a seat? Well, to tell the truth, I like to take pictures. And after all, I'm Scotch, and I'd much rather save the money, so what I do is take a ladder down." And I put it back of the crowd. I climb up and look over everybody, and I'm able to see the rose parade. And Zacchaeus, he was short of stature, he couldn't see either. But you notice what he did. He wasn't able to get a ladder, but there happened to be a sycamore tree there. He ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for us to pass that way. And while I was over in that land, I took a good look at a sycamore tree. They've got them right down at Jericho today. And they're like our sycamore trees in one sense. Sycamore trees pretty hard to climb, friends. It has slick bark, and it's always a long ways to the first limb. And I think that this little fellow had a hard time getting up that tree. He's a short fellow to begin with, and it's a long ways to the first limb. And I tell you, he sweated it out, and he finally got up there and sat down on a limb among the leaves and thought he was secluded there and had a private box for the parade. And he waited, and sure enough, Jesus came by, and our Lord knew he was there. He'd gone through Jericho to get him. And I read verse 5, "...and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, and come down for the day." I must abide at thy house. And I think when our Lord looked up and saw him and said unto him, I think that he laughed. Somebody says it doesn't say that. I know it doesn't. But, friend, you can't read this without seeing the humor in it. Our Lord, I think, looked up as if to say, Well, Zacchaeus, you wanted to see me, and you really worked to get up that sycamore tree, and you are there. But make haste now and come down. Make haste where well, the fellow had been all half a day getting up there." But it didn't take him long to get down. It's lots easier to come down than to go up. And so our Lord says, I must abide at thy house. And our Lord didn't stop at the mayor's house. He didn't stop at any prominent place, certainly no Pharisee's house here. But he was going to stop at this man Zacchaeus. And we're told he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. I tell you, Zacchaeus was having fun now, and I think it was a joyful occasion. And when they saw it, oh, notice that, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And who is they? He made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, who's they? Well, it's that same crowd that's still gossiping today. Somebody comes to me and said, do you know what they are saying, God of McGee? What, who's saying? Same crowd. They're always gossiping. They always have been gossiping. And they were gossiping here, and they said, Can you imagine it, that he's gone to dinner with a man that is a sinner? And if you thought a while ago when I said the publican was a sinner and a big one, and that Zacchaeus surely did qualify, maybe you thought I exaggerated. But the neighbors didn't think so. They said he's gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And then there's a lapse of time here, just how long, I'm not prepared to say. But our Lord went in, he didn't stay overnight, he never spent the night in Jericho, he just entered and passed through, probably had a meal with him. But he went in there and the door was shut and the crowd milled around and gossiped, but nobody really knew. And then finally the door opened and Zacchaeus stood and he said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor... And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And I can't believe what I hear. Say, you mean to tell me that's Zacchaeus that said that? And somebody says, yes, he said that. Well, I said, he's been robbing the poor. Now he's going to give half of his goods to the poor? Can't believe it. It's right about face for him. And he says, if I've taken anything by false accusation, and friends, you can just write it down, he had... He had to do a lot of restoring, and he's going to restore him fourfold. That's according to the Mosaic law, by the way. We saw that back in Exodus, the 22nd chapter. And he's going to restore him. And I just can't believe what I've heard, and something's happened on the inside. I don't know what happened on the inside, it doesn't tell us here. The door's closed, and something happened in there, and door opens, and there's Zacchaeus, a new man. What did our Lord talk about? Well, we have every other incident where he dealt with an individual, and we have the conversation, but not here. wonder why. Well, I think for a purpose. The Spirit of God didn't give us this. First of all, let me say that our Lord, every time he talked to anyone, he always talked about two things, man's need, and second, God's ability to meet that need. Well, he didn't have to tell Zacchaeus he was a sinner. Zacchaeus knew it. Everybody said he was. You see, all the neighbors did, and he admitted it. He was a sinner. And the second thing, he told him about God's ability. What was it that he told him about? I think that I know. He told him that I'm going to Jerusalem to die on the cross, that there might be a mercy seat for you to come to, Zacchaeus. You say to me, how do you know that? Well, notice what Jesus said unto him. This day a salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. As a son of Abraham when he became a publican, he was shut out from that mercy seat in the temple, but that mercy seat was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and pointing to the blood that he shed for us on the cross and he's telling Zacchaeus, I'm going up to die for you to make a mercy seat for you to come to. I say to you, friends, this is a very wonderful verse. It's a very wonderful passage of Scripture that we have here, do we not? Now, those are the two things that they talked about, and this man, Zacchaeus, made a decision for Christ. And I draw from this lesson, and let me read now the tenth verse, "...for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." First of all, let me say that this man, Zacchaeus, came to the door, and he didn't say Jesus saves and keeps and satisfies. Now, that's a good testimony if it's the truth when you give it. He didn't come to the door and say that, I'm going to do better. He didn't come to the door and say that he's going to join the church. He didn't say he's going to go through a ceremony. He came to the door and he said, I'm changed. I'm a new man. I'm going to do differently than I've ever done before. I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I draw from that another lesson, and that lesson is that Jesus is still entering and passing through your town, wherever it is. And when he passes through your town, he's saying today to this one and that one, come down, I want to have dinner with you, I want to talk to you about your soul, talk to you about your salvation. And what about it, friends, as he entered and passed through your home, through your heart? Well, he wants to, (laughs) he wants to, and he will. But he comes in as a Savior to save a sinner, just like he did when into the home of Zacchaeus. He went in. And by the way, I think this is given to us this way to illustrate what James says. James says, you show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And Zacchaeus is showing us his faith by his works. He didn't have to say these things. He demonstrated them. And the world today is looking for something. It's not listening for something. It's looking for something. And this man, Zacchaeus, had it. Jesus had been to his house. And you can always tell the house Jesus has been to, it'll be different. You can tell the heart Jesus has entered. It'll be different. These are the things that are all important here. Now, I've spent a great deal of time with this because I consider this a very important incident, as you can see. Now, we have the parable of the ten pounds, and they're, by the way, very important also. I'm reading verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now, he was coming to Jerusalem to die, and many of them, including his apostles, thought the kingdom was about ready to come. And it wasn't, that is, to be established on the earth, and he was going to die. So he's showing them here that the kingdom was really postponed, that he's going to go away, and he'll come again. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. You see, he's gone back to heaven. He gets the kingdom from the Father, not from you and me. We don't vote him in. When he comes next time, we're told that he'll dash them in pieces with a rod of iron. Friends, he's not asking anybody to vote for him when he comes the next time. They'll either receive him or they'll be destroyed. That's the way it'll be next time. He came the first time as a Savior. Now he said he's gone away to receive a kingdom. And he called his ten servants, delivered them ten pounds, said unto them, Occupy till I come." But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We'll not have this man to reign over us. And that's just about what the world is saying to him today. But that's not going to keep God from sending him to the earth. They've rebelled against God and his Messiah. But they say, Let's get rid of their cords. Let's get rid of him. We don't want him to rule over us. Well, he's going to anyway. It came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. You see, the important thing is that while he's away, friends, he's given to you a pound. And here it's all the same. Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And another one, why, his pound gained five pounds. And here he's giving to every man an opportunity, and that opportunity is the pound. And you're to be faithful for whatever he's made you a steward of. Your pound may be a whole city, and another man's pound may be just a handful of people. Another man, well, another woman, it may be just a home, but they're to be faithful. And when he comes, why, well, he's going to reward them according to their faithfulness, you see. That is the important thing faithfulness. Now, we have in this chapter the record of the triumphal entry, but we've had that before in Matthew, and we've had it in Mark, and we're going to get some more in John. So I'm going to pass that by here. We did say before that he entered Jerusalem three times, and when you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, you can see he came in first on the Sabbath day and just looked around went out. Came in on Sunday, and that day the money changers were back in the temple. He cleansed the temple, and the third day came in the temple and taught. And I'm not sure, but what he probably continued to come in that week, but he never spent the night in the city. Then you have the incident here of him weeping over Jerusalem, verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, "If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day." the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from thine eyes. And friends, they're still hid from their eyes. I saw a sign on a curtain. This was a picture, by the way, of a convention they were having in Jerusalem. And this big motto on the curtain in which the convention meant, said, science will give us peace in our day. Well, our Lord said that You just don't know what it is that's going to bring peace. And science has not brought them peace. It's given them some pretty good weapons and also an atom bomb. And so he weeps over Jerusalem because of that. Then we find him here cleansing the temple again. He cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry. John gives us that. And he cleansed it at the end of his ministry, at the time that he went into Jerusalem. And I believe that was on... The Sunday that he went in, first day, you see, he didn't do anything but just look around. That was a Sabbath day. We come now to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and our Lord now is coming into Jerusalem. We saw him last time, you'll recall, as he entered Jericho, and then he left Jericho, and he went on up to Jerusalem, and he entered there, we know, three times in a triumphal entry three days, and then he wept over Jerusalem probably on that last day. He wept over the city, and he cleansed the temple. He's in Jerusalem now. And Dr. Luke gives us this last encounter that he has with the religious rulers. And there were three groups of those, of course. There were the Herodians, and there were the Pharisees, and there were the Sadducees. And Matthew is very careful to give them... In that particular order but we find here that Dr. Luke has a different purpose in mind I think we'll see it as we enter this 20th chapter and I'm reading now it came to pass that on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple now that's my reason for believing that he came in every day until he was arrested until the Passover and taught in the temple And he preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders. And they spoke unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I'll also ask you one thing, and answer me. And again, if you noticed, his method was the Socratic method, as it's called. That is, he answered a question with a question. It's a good way, by the way, especially if you've got a good question. And his question here is, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of man? Well, that was one they couldn't answer. (laughs) You see, if they said it's of John, well, notice, they had to go off and have a huddle to see whether they were going to answer it. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? That is, if John's baptism was from heaven, and if we say of man, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you, but what authority I do these things? In other words, you see, their question was not an honest and sincere question. If they had been willing to accept John, they would have been willing to accept him, you see. So he moved right back to John and said, now, what do you think of John? And therefore, that would answer the question about his authority. In other words, if they had accepted John, they would never have questioned the authority of Jesus. I feel like questions like, where did Cain get his wife? Well, where did he get his wife? Married his sister, of course. That's no problem. I feel like when people are asking questions like that, they're either very simple believers that really just haven't got into the Word of God at all, or else it's a deceitful question. It has to be one or the other, because there is a question that comes before these questions, and the question would be, do you believe the Word of God? Then that answers it, doesn't it? Where Cain got his wife. Oh, you say, but it doesn't say that he married his sister. I have a question to ask you. I'm using the method. Where then would he get his wife? If he didn't marry his sister, who else was around? I mean, you know, God expects us to use the noodle that's on top of our shoulders. And the problem today is that there's so many people, when they come to the Bible, they leave their head somewhere else. And we need to use it, because the Bible will respond to good, common, consecrated sense. And that is the question here, and he answered it, by the way. He answered it by not answering it. If they'd been sincere, they would have had an answer. Now, he gives the parable of the vineyard here, and this is the one. We've had it in Matthew and Mark, and the vineyard, of course, is Israel. And let me read. "...And began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, and led it forth to husbandmen." and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him, sent him away empty. And this, if you remember, is the parable where when he sent one servant and they beat him up, he sent another and another. And that's the way God had done. He'd sent prophet after prophet to them, and they had absolutely rejected the prophets and stoned many of them, killed them. And finally, he sent his son, and that could not be missed. That is the meaning, because it was obvious that he was talking about himself, the Son of God. But also, he's telling them exactly what they've got in their mind and heart to do with him and what they're going to do with him, and God will permit it, that he will be crucified. But notice how he concludes this. Verse 17, And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head corner stone. In other words, you may destroy him, that is, by killing him, but you wouldn't destroy the purpose of God because that stone which you reject, that'll become the headstone of the corner. But now he says, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. You can fall on the stone today and be saved. You have to come as a sinner, broken in spirit, broken in heart. And when you do, well, you'll be saved, and you'll be on the foundation that no man can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, the stone. But on whomsoever it shall fall, and Daniel told about that stone that'll come in judgment some day, it'll grind him to powder. Now this is as clear as the noonday sun, it couldn't be misunderstood. Now they came to him, we're told here, verse 19, the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived he had spoken this parable against them. And he sure had. You see, they got the point. The trouble of it is there are two men in the church miss it today. Now they ask him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly." The thing is that they're a bunch of hypocrites. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? And, of course, the Herodians are the ones who pose this question because they wanted to get rid of Caesar and they wanted to put the house of Herod over Israel. And they asked him, is it right to give tribute to Caesar? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or no? And he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. And we've had this one before. They said to him, Caesar's. And again, he borrowed the penny. Why? Because he didn't have one, friends. And he's using theirs. And he says, now you're using Caesar's money. It's got his superscription on it. You're using his roads. You accept his protection. Well, you should pay taxes, therefore. I think maybe they were maybe being a little overtaxed in that day as We are in our day. And then we have here another group came to him, the Pharisees. Then we had the Herodians. Now the Sadducees come. And the Sadducees are the worst crowd of all in my book. Now let me read verses 27 and 28. "...then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection." And they ask him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. And that was true. It's in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It's an unusual law. By the way, it worked in the case of Ruth, in the book of Ruth. Only instance I know where it's in operation. And here we see it again being used. And so on the basis of that, they give this, there were therefore seven brethren, first took a wife, died without children, the second took her, and so on and so on, till all seven married her. And last all the woman died, and of course their question is a ridiculous one, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? All seven had her to wife. And I'm of the opinion that our Lord could have said other things than he said here, but he answered and said, The children of this world, marry and are given in marriage. And I think he indicated that maybe they didn't make it to heaven. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And the thing that he had said also to them, which both Matthew and Mark tell us, said, You are ignorant of the word of God, and you don't know anything about the power of God. Now, this group represent a group, I think, that are in existence today. Who are the Sadducees, and why did they ask this question? Well, they had a long history. We haven't had very much about them. I've dwelt on the Pharisees, and I've had a word to say about the Herodians and the scribes. But they arose as a sect about the year 300 B.C., Most of the high priests and temple politicians were Sadducees. They were prominent and rich. And isn't it interesting today that all of the church politicians and all of the rich churches are liberal? That seems to run. Human nature doesn't change, friends, down through the centuries. It's bad all the time. And so, in relation to the religion of Israel, they denied the supernatural. You remember Dr. Luke in his second treatise, the book of Acts, he describes them in chapter 23, verse 8, "...for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit." But the Pharisees confess both of those things. Now, they stripped the Scripture of the supernatural. It was no miraculous at all. And they were in conflict with the Pharisees who were supernaturalists. The Sadducees did not regard the authority of Scripture. Certainly they had never accepted the inerrancy of Scripture. And there's a striking similarity to what is liberalism today. Oh, there are different names for them today, but liberalism, and I don't like the name. I don't think they're liberal at all. The most narrow-minded men I've ever met are men who are liberal, so-called, in politics and in religion or in theology. I would like another one. It's a departure from historic Christianity. Of course, liberalism is today. It's so far removed from historic Christianity and the reformed faith of Protestantism that years ago Dr. Bergroff made this statement. He says, the difference is so great between them, that is, conservatism and liberalism, that one or the other will have to surrender the term Christian. And in my book, I've already decided the liberal is not a Christian at all. I think they ought to give up the term myself. Many churches ought no longer to call themselves a Christian church. They ought to call themselves the first so-and-so club of town. We are the first religious club, or the second religious club, or the boulevard religious club. Because it's not a church, it's not Christian. Now, there was a time when those who were unregenerate were outside the church. They denied the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the supernatural. They were called infidels, skeptics. And there was a time, actually, when I first came to Southern California. You'd see them on soapboxes right down from the Church of the Open Door in Persian Square. And now they're in many of the pulpits of the city. They're still infidels and skeptics, and they deny the deity of Christ and the supernatural. They've joined the church. They've crept into the church unawares. You see, the Sadducees, they'd come to political power, and they were in control of the politics of Jerusalem, just as these liberals are in control of the major denominations today. A popular preacher right here in Southern California 20 years ago admitted, frankly, that he was not born again and said that his child did not need to be because he was his son. I don't know why any man would think because he had a son that he would be different from the drunkard in the gutter or the prostitute on the street. wouldn't be any different. We all have the same human nature, and it's fallen human nature. But that's the position, you see, they take. Now, the Sadducees were the greatest enemies which Christ had and they were the main instigators of the first persecution of the church. You see, the enemies of Christ, they attempted to put him on the cross. And the Pharisees joined with the Sadducees at that time. In fact, the Pharisees led in it. But when it came time after the Lord Jesus has put to death, the Pharisees were through. They were not interested anymore to persecute. In fact, many of them were converted. But the Sadducees went on with the persecution of the church. And you will find that in Acts, the fourth chapter and the fifth chapter, there are Sadducees that were religious rulers. Now, the present-day liberals talk a great deal about church unity. But at the same time, they've caused the greatest division that the church has ever had. And you see, the resurrection was the acid test of the Sadducees of that day, and it's the acid test of the liberal today. Somebody said to me, well, I always ask them about the death of Christ. I never do. I ask them about the resurrection of Christ. Do they believe that it was a literal resurrection? Now there is no account in Scripture of a Sadducee ever coming to Christ for salvation. A Pharisee got converted, Nicodemus and also a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. A publican got converted, that was Zacchaeus. And a rich man got converted, and that was Joseph of Arimathea. And many of the priests were converted, for in Acts 6-7 it says, and a great company of the priests were obedient unto the faith. And my friend, may I say to you, there is no record of a Sadducee being converted." And there's some today who think liberal preachers are going to turn to God and are going to be saved. I don't believe it. I'm a skeptic. Believe me, in that connection, it just doesn't happen. They go farther and farther away from the truth, and they instigated the little popular thing that went around, God is dead. The only thing is, God wouldn't lay down and play dead with them. He's still alive, by the way. And every young minister soon discovers that the preaching of the cross is an offense and that he can never be popular, he'll never be voted the most outstanding citizen of his town, he'll never find himself in a great position politically, and he will not get on TV very often. The subtle temptation is to throw the gospel overboard and become a popular preacher. I think that's the back of it, like Judas, sell Jesus. Peter denied him, but he loved him, and he came back to it. And, my friend, when a man sells Christ for popularity, he'll never come back. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Next time some starry-eyed optimist tells you that the liberals are coming back, you forget it, will you? The Sadducees were the worst enemies that the gospel of Christ has ever had, whether it's in the first century or the twentieth century are the 21st century. And they could quote Scripture, oh boy, could they quote Scripture. They said Moses wrote. The liberal quotes the Bible, but my, he quotes it for a purpose. And we have here these Sadducees that came. They denied the resurrection, and their problem was they did not know the Scripture. They're ignorant of it. And I'm amazed how ignorant they are of the Scripture. And they're also ignorant of the power of God. May I say, and I'd like to go farther into this, the Sadducees of the first century and the Sadducees of the 20th century are the greatest enemy that the Lord Jesus Christ has ever had. And the important thing is that our Lord makes it clear that in heaven you don't marry given in marriage. And that doesn't mean that a man and wife down here can't get together in heaven, if they want to be together, but there are going to be some who won't want to get together, and that'll be all right, also. However, they'll both have new natures, maybe they'll be on speaking terms at least. And the very interesting thing is that we're not going to be angels in heaven anyway. When I was a little boy, they had us singing in Sunday school, I want to be an angel, and with the angels sing, and that's all I remember the song. And the reason I remember that is because I didn't want to be an angel, and I sure was far from it. Nobody ever accused me as a boy of sprouting wings. They Always the question was, what have you been doing? And what did you get into today? Well, may I say to you, I was certainly happy to find out I'm not going to be an angel. Now the Lord Jesus concludes all of this by turning a question on the scribes. Verse 39, then certain of the scribes answered and said, Master, thou hast well said, and after that they durst not ask him any question at all. So he asked a question, and he's good at that too. He's going to have a lot of questions to ask you and me someday, and I hope we've got the answers. He said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? And you see, our Lord taught the virgin birth. How could David call Jesus Lord if he's not virgin born? Because you see, it would be the son calling the father Lord and master. But it's the other way round here. Now we come to the prophetic section of Luke's Gospel, what would normally correspond to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and Mark. But actually, there is a similarity, but there's also a contrast. And it seems to me that these questions that were put to him that Matthew gives us, when shall these things be one stone not left upon another, What is the sign of the end of the age, and what is the sign of his coming? That you have just a little different construction here in Dr. Luke's gospel, and that probably he spoke on this on several occasions. And certainly toward the end of his ministry, he did. And what we probably have here is, he answered the first questions of the disciple in Luke's account, and then later They came on the Mount of Olives and asked him in detail. Then he gave the more formal and complete statement. Be that as it may, however, Luke deals with one of the most practical aspects, and there's no mystery or speculation as to his meaning. Because most of Luke's record is no longer prophecy, it's history. It's been fulfilled. After all, prophecy is the mold into which history is poured. And there's already been some pouring done here. With that in mind, let's come to this section. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in feather two mites. And he said of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God." But she of her penury have cast in all the living that she had. Now, compared to the wealth of that temple, and it was a wealthy temple, her gift didn't amount to very much. Frankly, it didn't. Her, the two little old coppers that she dropped in actually didn't do very much in the upkeep of the temple. But our Lord doesn't measure your giving by that. He measures it not by what you give, but what you keep for yourself. That's a different way. You know, a great many people say, My, look how much he gives to the Lord's work. The Lord doesn't look at that. The Lord looks, My, look how much he's keeping for himself. And that is the way God measures it. That, again, is my reason for believing that today we're not under the tithe. That's what you give. It's what you keep for yourself. And that's grace giving. There are a great many people today that ought to be giving more than a tenth to the Lord the way that he's blessed them. One man told me if I only gave a tenth to the Lord, he said, I'd feel like I was stealing from him. Probably would be. And he gives a great deal more, though, by the way. Now, our Lord looked, therefore, at that. I find a great many people relative to our radio program, and let me be very practical about this, they send in... A dollar or two. And they say, well, this is not very much, Dr. McGee, and we can't help you very much. Did you know that it's those that are giving the dollar or two that keeps the radio on the air? That's the reason I'm on the air, is because of givers like that. Now, we have very few people. You see, I don't appeal to the rich for some reason. I wish I knew how you can, but I don't, and as a result. Why, we have a great company of one- and two-dollar givers, and they give regularly, and that's what keeps the radio going. And when you look at our radio bill and look at the dollar, you say, well, that's not much. No, that's not much. But when you've got a whole army of people that are doing that, it's a great deal more. And frankly, I'd like to have it that way. I appreciate the good givers... And I appreciate the good givers who are small givers also, because God's looking at the sacrifice, and it's the little giver that generally is making the real sacrifice. I think this is a marvelous thing. And by the way, next Sunday morning, when the treasurer of the church may say, my, doesn't Mr. So-and-so give a whole lot to the Lord's work? Well, what does God say? Now, he's looking at what you're keeping for yourself. Now we come to this Olivet Discourse so-called. Let me read it. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said. Now you see, when he mentioned that poor widow gave more than all the rich, they said, Why look at the temple, the riches that's in it, the stones, and how valuable it is. Well, that woman didn't give much. Yes, she did. <laughs> that's the whole point. And it's the little giver that is probably given more, because you're not measured by the tenth. You're not measured by the percentage. You're measured about the sacrifice that you're making. Now they called attention to the temple. And verse 6, "...as for these things which ye behold, the days will come, in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down." Now, you see, it was in another connection here that he made that statement. And the result, of course, the reaction would be the same. And they ask him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Now, you will find out that in Matthew's Gospel and Mark that the emphasis is put upon the last two questions put to the Lord Jesus. What is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of the end of the age? In other words, the return of Christ is the important thing in Matthew, and Matthew gives his answer to those questions. Now, Luke emphasizes the destruction of Jerusalem, and that is, when shall these things be? That is, one stone not be on another. Now, verse 7, "...and they ask him, saying, But when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, now, this is part of that discourse that we have also in Matthew. And as we've indicated before, our Lord gave his teachings over and over again. He didn't mind repeating. After all, that's the way God teaches, line upon line, precept upon precept, and it's by repetition. We're told today that that shouldn't be the method of learning, but that's the way all of us learn. How do you learn to drive an automobile? By getting in the car and just doing the same thing over and over again. That's the way you learn. And that's the way God teaches us also, by the way. And what we have here is, he said, take heed... "...that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them." In other words, the characteristics of the times would be there'd be false Christs. And this is the feature of the age in which we live. It's been true ever since he was here. There were false messiahs in his day. There are those that today claim supernatural power They actually are moving into the place of Christ. They draw attention to themselves rather than to the Lord. Now, they talk a great deal about Jesus today. I know you hear all of that, and it's saccharine sweet. But actually, it does not glorify him one whit, because it's taking away the glory from him. And we're seeing that, and it's being increased as we approach the end of this age. I think that there are quite a few false Christs that are walking around today. And false religion is certainly in abundance. And then he says in verse 9, "...but when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, "Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom." And that's another characteristic of the age, war, a sign of the age. It's not a sign of the end of the age. Probably be intensified toward the end of the age, and especially as you draw nearer, the war is increasing. They're not decreasing. Pacifism is growing, and right now the pacifists today are busier than they've ever been before. But the Word of God also says, "...when they shall say peace..." and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. We are right now in that position. Wars identify the entire period until the Lord returns. Every war produces a fresh crop of prophets always. And all you have to do is to turn to the church page of any metropolitan newspaper today on Saturday and notice the prophets that are abroad today in the false religion. There's not been a century since the days of Christ that wars were not in evidence. And that's another sign. And then there's something else of the whole age. And great earthquakes shall be in divers places, famines and pestilences, and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. That's another feature of the age, probably intensified toward the end. And then verse 12, "...but before all these they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony." Now, who's he talking to here? Well, he's talking to the nation Israel. And that's another feature of the age. The application is for them. But you will also find that Christians were to be persecuted. You find that later on. He made it very clear in his ministry. Our Lord did. If the world hated me, it'll hate you also. If you're a follower of Christ, you're not going to win any popularity contest, I can assure you. Now, we have here again this same thing that's broken out. It broke out in Germany before World War II. Let me read this. And ye shall be betrayed, both by parents, brethren, kinsfolks, friends. Some of you shall they cause to be put to death, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish, and your patience possess your souls." Now, this is given specifically for the 144,000 who will be indestructible during the time of the great tribulation period. And that has not been true so far. All of those great ovens and the camps in Germany testify to the fact that millions of Jews were put to death. But the 144,000 in the days of the Great Tribulation, when the suffering will be more intense, will be indestructible. Now, will you notice what he says? When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Now, what is he talking about? They said, when shall these things be one stone not left upon another? Well, that took place in the days of Titus, the Roman, when he came to Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he besieged the city. And that's just a small miniature picture of what it's going to be in the last days. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh." I'm of the opinion that some of these men who saw the destruction of Jerusalem just a few years after this, about 40 years afterward, I'm sure that one turned to the other when he looked over the battlements of the walls of Jerusalem and he saw the banners of the army of Titus the Roman down there and all the legions' flags unfurled. One turned to the other and said, you know, this is the day that he talked about. And that was fulfilled then. They were to do then what they're to do in the great tribulation period. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the country enter therein. See, in that day, the idea was to get out of Jerusalem, because what happened in Jerusalem was fearful. Josephus tells us about it. Mothers ate their own children. They had to take the dead and throw them over the walls of Jerusalem. They were dying like flies. May I say to you what a picture this was that he's giving to them here. And it's a picture of the last days. There are those that say, well, this could never happen again. It happened once, friends, and that's a matter of history. He said it was going to happen, and it did. He says it's going to happen again. You know something? I believe he's right. And it looks like that he might be right the way things are moving today, by the way. Now he goes on to say here, "...these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled." He told them that when they said, "...His blood be on us and our children," my, they were scattered. Titus put them in slavery. They built the great Colosseum in Rome, by the way. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. It was, friends. You can't escape the facts of history. They shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled." Now, I want to call your attention to something that is, to my judgment, the most amazing thing in the world. For 1900 years, from the day that Titus entered that city, they have never been able to get the Gentiles out of the city of Jerusalem. They've controlled it from that day down to the very present. Now, I'm not going through the history of that today. It's very interesting to go through But I want to call your attention to the present day. Isn't it interesting that in our day, that though they got control of the city, they could not get the Gentiles out? Why? Well, the holy places are there. And where do you find the Jew today who has Jerusalem? He's digging down at the Wailing Wall. He's going down instead of building up. And there stands the Mosque of Omar. And there stands the churches that are there. The Gentiles are still there, my friend. Our Lord says it'll be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. I've watched that for a long time. Isn't it amazing how accurate the Word of God is? Now, will you notice this? And there shall be signs in the sun, the moon, And in the stars and upon the earth distress a nation with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring." Now, I think that this has reference now to the last days before he returns to the earth. I think now he's given this. This has already been fulfilled. Now he says this is the way it's going to be in the last days. Men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, I know that there are those that quote this and they give this as a picture of today. My friend, if I may use an old bromide that we've heard for years, it's the common colloquialism of the street. You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. If you think this, what we are seeing today, is the fulfillment of this verse, you're entirely wrong. Wait till it really comes to pass, the last days. Verse 26, men's hearts failing them for fear, looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. This is something more than what we're seeing today. It's bad enough today, don't misunderstand me. Wait till we get to this day. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. May I say to you, things are happening so fast today that the church could be taken out in the moment we'd move into this orbit. Even before this tape I'm making today gets to you on the radio, these things may begin to come to pass on the earth and the church may be gone. And if it is, I won't be here to carry on the program, and I hope all of you listening in won't be here to listen to it either. I hope that we'll be in His presence. Now, will you notice, "...and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory," and this is his return to the earth, "...when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh." Now, if you want to bring in a verse that could have application today, and I'm not going to insist on it, but it could, "...are these things beginning to come to pass?" I'm not in a position to know. I have no inside information. There are some men today that seem to have all this information, but I don't have it. And all I can say is that my salvation and my redemption is nearer than when I first believed. And I know he's coming. That's the thing that's all important to me. And he's going to take his church out of the world. Then he gives the parable of the fig tree here again, and I must say that I still consider it to be the nation Israel. They'll be the one. You see, they've always been a sign. God's timepiece is not B-U-L-O-V-A, and it's not G-R-U-E-N. God's timepiece is I-S-R-A-E-L. Now he gives some timely warnings in view of his coming. Verse 34, "...take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares." Don't let down your guard today, friends. Don't give up. <laughs> These are great days to live for God. That's what we're called to do. I'm not called upon to reform the world or change the world. That's God's business. That's not my business. He's asked me to live for him, asked me to get the word out. And I'm trying to do that. And with your help and by his grace, we're going to do it. But the thing is, this is very comfortable to know that you're in the will of God. That's the important thing. And he says, "...watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things." How are you going to be worthy? I can't be worthy The only thing that will make me worthy is Christ. And therefore, if I trust him, and I'm committed my way to him, and I'm looking for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the way I'm going to go out with the raptures, by the grace of God. And will you notice? And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. And I'm of the opinion that many of us would have been there, would we not, to have heard him.